in the year that King Uzziah died. That's like a really small byline that might seem like an extraneous detail to us, but I don't think this would have been overlooked by the Jewish readers or hearers of this story. So we're coming up on President's Day where we commemorate the birth of our leaders, marking Isaiah's dramatic call in terms of following Uzziah's death, King Uzziah's death would have been even more significant in how they marked time. Uzziah was pretty well known. This is, this is a little uh, uh, kind of refresher on Uzziah. He was a king in Jerusalem for 52 years. Chronicles, uh, 2 Chronicles 26 tells his story. He starts as king at 16. Wouldn't that be crazy if we had 16-year-old presidents, right? Maybe good, maybe not, right? Um, Uzziah was a rebuilder. He restored uh, Israel in the way that they so dearly needed. He broke down walls and he rebuilt towns. And like, there's this really great detail in Second Chronicles uh, that really contrasts him with some of the brutal tyrants around Israel that would conquer peoples and then uh, to add kind of insult to injury, they would salt the fields so that uh, not only were, were these places sacked, but they couldn't rebuild. They couldn't grow food for generations. It would just ruin their, their soil, right? But the chronicler uh, includes a little detail about Uzziah, that Uzziah loved the soil. And he built water towers uh, in the wilderness. So flocks grazed and kind of his urban sprawl was more of a rural sprawl of this kingdom out, uh, out and out and out. Uh, he was also a really brilliant military commander-in-chief. Uh, he not only flexed muscle, uh, but also built up like a really impressively well fleet so that they didn't have to fight as much because people looked at him like, I'm not messing with Uzziah's army. So you might wonder, if you're doing the math, why someone who took over at 16 and ruled for 52 years would make him about 68, which is a reasonable age to still be king, why he's now out of the picture in the year that King Uzziah died. So as the story then goes, Uzziah kind of bypassed the temple structures of his day and arrogantly walks into the temple on his own. He was used to being in charge in his kingdom, in charge of his court, in charge of his life. So he decided to try to be in charge of worship. He was looking kind of to further consolidate power. He was already the king, and so maybe he could also add, like, priest and then maybe eventually prophet to his CV and, like, round out, like, the trifecta of awesome things that you could be in charge of, right? But there was one problem. No one, <laughs> not even the priests who are, like, stewards of the temple, stewards of God's worship, connectors between humanity and God, not even the priests are in control of God. Not even your pastor is in control of God, right? Worship is not for us. It's for God. It, it's, it, it is marking in our lives and with our speech and with our thoughts that God is worthy. That is what our worship is. So to march in the way that Uzziah marched in, and he had like incense with him, 
um, which, which was part of the worship ceremonies, but he was doing it, to march in that way gets things exactly upside down. And for Uzziah, that meant he would be struck with leprosy, right? And leprosy, at least in the ancient Jewish mind, was like a sort of sacrament of sacrilege. <laughs> it meant it was like an outward and tangible manifestation of an inward and intangible reality. If your heart was bad or profane, so too was your skin. It was like death creeping from the inside out and from the outside in sort of thing. And not only that, if you had leprosy, you were deeply alienated. It had deep social ramifications. A leper couldn't be in the presence of a worshiping community and was cast out. So Uzziah's presumption instantly spun him out. Originally, he was at the center of what was going on in Israel, and now he was at the fringes, the far fringes. And it was on the margins that he died. He was kind of a cautionary tale to the rest of the kingdom. No amount of, like, none of his accolades or achievements, no amount of his, like, military prowess or agricultural or geopolitical savvy could save him from his own pride. For all his amazing and prosperous work, he'd made a dreadful miscalculation. Holy ground is dangerous ground. The holy is never, never something of God that we can take as if we owned it and used it for our own purposes. And all of this is embedded into that one little line in the year that King Uzziah died. So then what follows fits squarely with what we've been talking about for the last month or so in this epiphany season together. We find Isaiah, who we come to know as one of the greatest prophets. Like some, uh, his writings are considered by some Christians as like a fifth gospel because of how um, it witnesses to Jesus and, and to God's purpose in this world. We find Isaiah being called by God. This is the genesis of Isaiah's mission. This call is predicated on a vision and an unveiling and an appearance by God and God's glory, which gives Isaiah insight and direction. This is epiphany stuff. This call was based on an epiphany. And like any good epiphany, when we look back, we can kind of start to trace where it came from, but at the time we were completely off guard on where all this was going. That's what's happening for Isaiah. So today I want to look at Isaiah's call story together. And call stories are kind of a thing in the Bible, right? Like maybe it's sort of the way if you grew up in the church, the way like giving your testimony was a thing in like youth group. Like no one really taught you what that meant or like the step, or maybe they did. But most of the time they didn't. And you just kind of knew like what it meant to give your testimony, what it meant to talk about God's work in your life. And so these call stories are kind of function that way. They're all a little different. There's not a precise formula, but they're all performing the same function. If you listen to enough of them, you start to understand the genre. And like testimonies, some of them are really dramatic. I would characterize Isaiah's call story as pretty dramatic. 
like a heavenly throne room with seraphs with six wings and a lot happening here, right? Pretty dramatic. But some are significantly more mundane, but no less real and no less powerfully true. I think that's true with our testimonies, how we come to know God, how, how we come to, to feel embraced and grasped by, by the God who then we embrace and grasp onto. Usually in the Bible, these call stories happen when someone is met by God, either God directly or through an angel. And remember, the word angel is kind of like a messenger of God or through someone speaking for God, like a prophet. Um, what they kind of have in common is that they, they usually catch the person being called by surprise. <laughs> they usually, the, this person... Um, that gets called by God, usually feels inadequate or unprepared. They usually have no imagination for how all this is going to work, depending on how you're put together. That, that's pretty easy to squelch a call if, if you can't see the path ahead, right? Like, sometimes these people that are called resist. Maybe this is how you treat calls. Um, I've seen this we have some, we have great grad students here and great seminarians, but oftentimes seminarians are, are the most confused about calls because there's not much of an imagination for how all this weird gumbo of ingredients that God has put in them is going to manifest into some sort of pastoral ministry for the church. And so oftentimes my job, if I'm mentoring, is, is to say, yeah, you're probably a pastor and you don't think you are, and you probably are, right? Um, and, and there's many callings, not just to be a pastor. Um, but oftentimes you have no imagination for it and you resist. But then God equips, God provides, and God does great things. Um, some, some of these calls really fast uh, that happen in the Bible. This is just a survey. There's so many more of them. But there's like the call of Jeremiah, who um, is sometimes known... And I think there's a side of Jeremiah, sometimes known as the weeping prophet, also maybe known as like the face palm prophet because his palm is always on his face. Click one more time. <coughs> yeah, that's every time you see Jeremiah, you're going to see his face palm, right? There's Moses who stutters and asks if his brother Aaron can help him out. There's uh, Amos who says, I'm just a redneck farmer. I couldn't be a prophet. There's Hosea. Oh, poor Hosea. He's really rough calling on Hosea. There's Jonah, who doesn't even believe in the mission. You can keep going, Anna. That's, that's, uh, that's Hosea. Keep going. Yeah, that's Jonah. He doesn't even believe in the mission. Uh, he doesn't think that Nineveh is deserving of God's forgiveness, and they're really not. But it takes him getting vomited up by a fish to stay on track, right? And, of course, then there's also folks like Mary. Yeah. And Mary seems kind of way more in tune with what God's doing. Like, even though it's going to require her very body to carry it out, right? And then there's Saul, who gets knocked down um, and painted very beautifully by Caravaggio. Um, knocked down and blinded and has his name changed in order to kind of get it, right? Uh, you can go one more, Anna. Yeah, that's, that's Saul on the ground here, right? All of these are calls by God. They're all really different. All of them take a specific person 
that God is calling to work with in and sometimes in spite of that person to bring about God's purposes. And this is still how God calls. Despite our objections, our ignorance, our fear, our inadequacy, God calls and God equips. God is going to provide you with the means to carry out what God's calling you for. He's not just going to leave you stranded. The main disqualifier is not your, uh, how equipped you come into the situation. The main disqualifier is the sort of presumption that Uzziah showed in taking control as if he knows the rest of the story or could finish God's sentences for God. Being called requires us to hear rather than to speak. Being called requires us to be acted upon rather than to be the primary actors, even, as, even though we're going to join God in God's action, right? I want to describe a few things that, have, uh, that specifically happen in Isaiah's story. It also might be helpful for you with your own grappling with your ability to hear and respond to God's calling in your life. So first in Isaiah's story, Isaiah sees that God is holy and that God is here. Isaiah looks up and sees the Lord, and it doesn't exactly, he doesn't exactly see the Lord. He sees the outline of the Lord, like the eclipse of God, right? Like do, you, do you remember when we had the eclipse and you couldn't look directly at it? You had to wear glasses and look at a mirror through a dark thing sideways, and then you could see the eclipse. That's kind of what's happening here. He sees the outline of God's robe from the throne that, that is over the temple, right? This kind of jives with the way worshiping Jews like, wouldn't even pronounce the name of God, uh, uh, for fear that, that they that they lock too closely in or, or would take God's name in pain. Or m- maybe it's something similar to the mode we find Jesus in in Mark's gospel, uh, telling parables so that people, not so that people will see, so that they won't see, and kind of carrying on this messianic secret. Uh, because if, it, if his identity is too clear to them, they're if they get too full on a view of what God's doing, they might take Uzziah-like liberties with things, right? We're not even sure that Isaiah is necessarily in the temple here. Since the edges of God's robe fill the temple from his high and lifted up throne, a seat of righteous judgment where the world is called to rights. Somehow Isaiah just looks up and this God vision is happening, this epiphany is happening. And around the throne are seraphim, and there's like, seraphim are kind of like fiery snake angels, right? Do, do you guys have a vision for this? Like, they're not like the chubby cherubim. That's a different manner of angel altogether. These are like fiery snake angels. <laughs> it's true. They're terrible and horrific, and they're like harbingers of the holy. More than singing, they're not singing holy, holy, holy like our musicians' like lovely voices led us in today. They're more like shouting or warning or announcing. Like I imagine their voice is more like the hiss of an electrified fence, that you're on holy ground right now, so tread lightly and preferably leave your shoes where you came in at. Maybe before these sounds were kind of muffled or muted by Uzziah's prideful boasting or presumptuous performance, right? But now they're full-throatedly saying, holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of heavenly forces. All the earth is filled with God's glory. Just like that, Isaiah's whole world gets flooded with what and who was already there. This is what it means to be called by God. Your whole world gets flooded with the God who's already there. To experience an epiphany of God's presence. To now know and to never be able to unknow that God is both near and that God is holy. We must never mistake God's otherness from creation, God being apart from God's creation, as aloofness or disinterest. But we also must never get too comfortable with what we think we know about God lest we domesticate God by squeezing God into like ideological boxes or nation-state borders or theological systems or ethnic supremacies. God is holy, 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 holy cubed, like holy in three dimensions, right? And has a whole army in heaven and fills the earth. God is holy and God is here. I think the ramifications of that turn us into what Barbara Brown Taylor calls detectives of the divine. Detectives of the divine are constantly on the lookout, investigating, hoping to see that God is going to show up for heaven to peek through, for holiness to impact our mundanity. Isaiah's calling forces him to then hold this tension. Both his, you read the rest of Isaiah, both his diagnosis of Israel's unfaith and his hopeful forecast towards Israel's healing. They hold together God's holiness and God's presence with them. This is predicated on and will require God to be both holy and here. And Isaiah now understands this in a way that he can't not see and can't not tell about. Eugene Peterson writes about this, um, what this does to us, how, how we walk in this holiness that we've encountered. It says, we acquire readiness and perceptiveness for the holy by worshiping God, the holy, and practicing the posture and rudiments of worship wherever we find ourselves, sitting in a pew or driving a car, reading a book or watching a cloud, writing a letter or picking a wildflower. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, there is more and the more is God, revealing himself in Jesus by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. This more has nothing to do with cosmetics. Holiness is transformative, although rarely sudden. And the more is not often obvious. In fact, more often obscure. The holy life begins in the times and places and lives that ambition and pride ignores or despises. Isaiah experiences God as both holy and here. The second thing about Isaiah's calling in his experience is that Isaiah admits that he's part of the problem. When faced with God's glory, Isaiah is undone. He says, mourn for me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people with unclean lips. Yet I've seen the king, the Lord of heavenly forces. So often there's kind of this pressure in the things of God with our encounters with God. Like when you when you read something meaningful in scripture or you have a, a wonderful time in prayer, I don't know about you, maybe it's just because I'm a preacher, that I feel like pressure to like 
organize that and articulate that so that I can like package it so I can articulate it to you or tell someone about it or make sure you know that I'm still having these insights of wisdom and truth, right? But instead for Isaiah, we see that coming in contact with God doesn't bundle him up, it unravels him and he's not too quick to put the pieces back together. Rather than cheer for me because I've seen God, his impulse is mourn for me. <laughs> his experience with God radically recenters him. It, it turns his gaze away from himself and towards the Lord of heavenly host. And in the process of seeing God, he actually sees himself correctly, maybe for the first time. Who is he to be standing there in the middle of this scene? Let's not take this too far, because Scripture also witnesses to the fact that humanity is made just a little lower than angels, right? So we're not just scum and, and awful. God is really proud and says we're very good. So we're a little lower than angels, and that little bit is, not, uh, is no little gulf, right? But compared to God, <laughs> what are we, right? I love Isaiah's next move, because he also holds two more things together. He holds his sins, lowercase s, and the sin, capital S, of his people. Isaiah admits that he's part of the problem. Not in like some sort of navel-gazing way, and definitely not in the sort of way that dissociates him from the unfaithfulness of Israel. This is important for us right now. When it's really tempting to like look at headlines or, or updates or tweets or... Uh, any sort of media and be grossed out at whatever the like news cycle du jour highlights as our society's sin, whether it's brutal ice raids in our neighborhoods or chillingly vicious legislation towards the unborn or callous pseudo excuses for blackface yearbook photos, the list goes on. And Isaiah would indeed have thoughts on each and every one of these things, but never as some sort of like pious or woke outsider <laughs> who just like can, can dissociate and stand there wringing his hands at the horror of his society. No, in the presence of God, Isaiah is given the vision to see that he is unfaithful. He is inhospitable. He is death dealing. He is poisonous. In the presence of God, Isaiah admits that he's part of the problem. That has to happen before any thought of being part of the solution. Isaiah admits that he's part of the problem. And the third thing, Isaiah experiences the pains of being pure at heart. So upon this admission that I'm a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips, a seraph does what seraphs do and <laughs> brings the fire to the equation, right? The seraph touches Isaiah's mouth and says, see, this has touched your lips, as if there was any question, right? <laughs> your guilt has departed and your sin is removed. Like, hold on a sec. Like, has anyone ever even had, like, a zit on their lip? Do you know how much that hurts? And, like, this is like kissing a white-hot piece of charcoal. Like, that's crazy, right? 
the, the sensitivity of that, I can't, I, I just can't handle that. And I, Isaiah experiences this as a sort of like addition by subtraction. Like his experience is that he's having a sort of surgery that's meant to heal by wounding first. Or we're coming up on springtime. It's like a pruning that's meant to promote growth and vitality by cutting away, throwing into the fire. These are the pains of being pure at heart. Isaiah experienced a version of Jesus' beatitude blessing. Maybe it was backwards, but Jesus, remember, he said, Blessed are those who are pure of heart, for they shall see God. <laughs> Isaiah saw God and then was made pure. <laughs> He experienced these pains. In, in so doing, he, he kind of falls into another category. He's in the, the call story category. He also falls into another long category catalog of folks walking away from an interaction with God a little worse for wear, right? I think about Jacob. <laughs> Jacob in the womb had a thing for grabbing at Esau's heel, right? That was kind of his thing. So then... Flash forward a few decades, grown-up Jacob wrestles all night with God, and right when it's about to end, God punches at his hip, and he walks with a limp for the rest of his life. <laughs> but he's able to say, I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Or consider again Paul, who in his terroristic zeal for God caused him to seek down and hunt Jesus' followers. And he was interrupted, struck blind, and then forced to receive in his blindness hospitality from Ananias, one of the very people he hated. And then when the scale f fell from his eyes, he realized he was a new person with a new family and a new name and a new mission. Maybe you've experienced this giving and taking away of God. Maybe it makes you nervous, and it should probably make all of us nervous. One of the times I saw someone really nervous about this, um, we sing here, and you all know the song, um, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. It's a great song, right? Great song. And there's that chorus in that song that says, you give and take away, you give and take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. One time I was attending a, a wedding that Rach was in. I wasn't in, so I just got to spectate. And this was before I performed weddings, so I literally didn't have anything to do. And the, they were running through the rehearsal, and, and the couple in this big, uh, beautiful church was going to process after being pronounced man and wife to blessed be the name of the Lord. And it was great. And the band was running through, and then they got to the you give and take away, and the bride stopped everything and said, no, we're not going to sing that part of the song. <laughs> we don't want to talk about you give and take away at our wedding day, right? <laughs> but, but sometimes when, when we're in Christ, in touch with God when we've been called, what we, we too might experience this taking away, uh, along with all the gifts of God. And I think these are the pains of being pure at heart. Uh, lastly, Isaiah volunteers for apparent failure. The Lord then says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah, through chapped lips that probably haven't even regained their sensation, says... I'm here, send me. And I, I love that line so much. 
my ordination service years ago, which an ordination um, is the church um, putting a kind of a stamp and a celebration and a cheer on someone's calling, uh, kind of syncing up with what this person is hearing about their life and their future from God and what the church is seeing and hearing from God and, and celebrating that. And so at my, at my ordination, I think there's a slide of that too, Anna. Um, at my ordination, we sang a song. Look at my hair, it's so great there. Uh, we sang some of the songs we sing today, Holy, Holy, Holy. We also sang a song called Here I Am, Lord. And it's this like 1981 Jesuit uh, song that is so great. And what I love about it is the, here I, the, the phrase is, here I am, Lord, is it I, Lord? And, and so the writer does this really crafty thing, and some Catholics really hate this, um, because they make it into a question, it, it, not a proclamation, right? It, it's more like in the like vein of, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, right? Like, here I am, Lord, is it I, Lord, right? And, and I love that because I think that's a, the dynamic nature of our calling with God. Like we're, what we're volunteering for is what God is going to do with us. And, and we kind of have an idea, but we don't have really any idea. Uh, it's, that's what we're signing up for with these callings. So this is one of those statements. And, and the, the Hebrew word is hineni, hineni, right? It's, it's kind of hard to understand the tone, enthusiasm, or motivation from which it's spoken, the here I am. But it seems clear that Isaiah has like an eyes and wa hands wide open approach with God. After Isaiah has opened himself up to God, he's been vulnerable enough to be healed. Of course, he'd allow God to direct him as an emissary back to those people with unclean lips. Perhaps this is like the only clarity that Isaiah thought he needed. Perhaps he assumed if God is for me, who could be against me? Or something like the maximum of like the center of God's will is the safest place or something like that. But I don't know if Isaiah really shouted or mumbled his hineni. And oftentimes folks only read this passage up to verse 8, up to here I am, send me. Um, that's the end, full stop, happily ever after. But then I think continuing gives us a little more insight into what's going on here, into what, if, if I, Isaiah had overly rosy picture of what he was volunteering for, then it, it gets shattered by what God says next. Because God starts writing zeros on the blank check that <laughs> Isaiah just wrote with his life, right? Yeah, just like keeping the amount going higher and higher, right? He'd be God's mouthpiece to a people who couldn't or wouldn't hear. He'd be charged with telling all the truth slant for a long time because, as Emily Dickinson writes, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. And God says, everyone's going to be blind. No one can hear. No one can feel or understand. Isaiah would be the tutor for the unteachable. That was his calling. Isaiah, who we hold to be one of the most important figures in the Bible, whom the gospel writers rely on and like Handel, Charles Wesley, Fisk Jubilee singers, all write brilliant music about this, volunteered for apparent failure. Like talking to a brick wall is what's going on with Isaiah's calling. 
at some point, being obedient to God's call always presents itself as a little bit of failure or at, at the very least as a little bit of mania to the world, right? You've got to be crazy. <laughs> In that call, though, we have our desires recalibrated from wanting what pleases us to wanting what pleases God. Even if it's mysterious, even if it comes at great expense to us, even if it's like we don't understand it. At some point, being in, a, in your calling, also you, you just kind of need to break the feedback loop. Like most of us re rely on some bit of feedback <laughs> to know how we're doing. We want performance reviews. We want to know um, that it's not working. We need to try something different. But with Isaiah, he, he's told up, up front how it's going to be so that he should not stop praying. He should not stop faithfully working with God even if the results he expected aren't coming. Because God is holy and God is here and God's thoughts and ways are higher and sometimes altogether different than ours. Henry Nouwen uh, wrote a book called The Wounded Healer, which is a wonderful book, and he he had a quote in the intro that captures well, I think, what it's often like to be called by God. And maybe this quote characterizes your frustration with God and your calling. The quote says, a door opens to me. That's the calling of God. I go in and am faced with a hundred closed doors. <laughs> I think that's what Isaiah is seeing here. And maybe that's where you're at this morning and, and it just feels like you're just banging your head on a wall. Hang in there. Keep listening. Keep working with God, keep trusting, keep, like within that, keep evaluating. Uh, Isaiah's answer to all this is, how long, Lord? It's, it's, it's lament, it's sadness and sorrow. He, he's not excited about this, but he's with it. It's not to say that this like, is an always and everywhere rule for, for, that you should like, go after in some sort of masochistic way. But there's not really often a one-to-one -one cause and effect correlation between whether something works or whether you're being obedient to God's call. And I want to encourage you in that. <laughs> so all of these things, uh, all of these things in Isaiah's call, they're really specific to Isaiah, but I think they're kind of characteristic of a lot of what's happening when God calls. And I think they wrap up, not like in a neat bundle, but wrap up beautifully and are held together in Jesus. Jesus who answered God's call in the most complete and faithful way possible and it got Jesus killed. Talk about cutting off the feedback loop. Jesus knew it would probably get him killed. He prayed, sweating blood in the garden, if at all possible, let's change directions. Let's take this cup from me, but if it's your will, let's do it. Here I am. Hanani, right? But God's spirit raised Jesus from the dead, gave him a victory over the powers of sin and death, and calls us to be with him even as he's been with us. It's in Jesus, we have the image of the invisible God, the God that we can't even look at. We can look straight at Jesus and see that God is holy and God is here. God will always be here. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. It's in Jesus that Jesus stands at both ends of the call. That's, that's the crazy thing here in this story. That Jesus is both on the throne and before it, 
both asking and answering, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Hanani, here I am, send me. Jesus, the sent one. God so loved his world that he sent his only son. And it's Jesus, the, the wounded healer who stands amongst an unclean people, who stands right in the middle of us and washes us with the blood of the lamb. It's by Jesus' stripes that we're healed. It's by Jesus' holiness, his righteousness that he associates with us. He, he, by the Spirit, we're joined to that, and that, that is our holiness, our righteousness in Christ. We're not pushed away, but we're, we're called friends. We're called more than friends. We're called family. We're called Jesus' sisters and brothers, fellow sons and daughters of God. It's in Jesus who continues to call out to us with stopped up ears. Pray that God will unstop our ears so that we can hear. It's Jesus who continues to illumine and open closed eyes. Remember those gospel stories? He's always touching people. He's smearing mud on them and they can see. It's Jesus who by his spirit calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That was Israel's problem. Is their hearts were hard and their minds were cold and they couldn't see or understand. And, and the spirit transforms us by renewing our minds. Will you answer these calls this week? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for what Isaiah had to go through <laughs> so that we uh, might learn about it. And, and most of all, we thank you for Jesus who perfectly embodies all of these things, who stands with us in your presence, who also gives us your presence. Uh, Lord, we thank you for that. Open our ears, open our eyes, uh, unlock our minds so that we might encounter you because you're here. Um, and more importantly, you're holy. You, you have the power, uh, you have the will to change things, to bring about justice and peace, to bring about righteousness, to heal, to rebuild, to restore, and to renew make our cold hearts, hearts of flesh that can respond to you. Thanks for giving us new life. Help us this week uh, have tuned ears and hearts and eyes to, to listen to and to, to take in and to see uh, your call in this world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.